Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Booze, Booms and Busts. We've made it to seven of these installments and it's been a very interesting week that we're actually going to be rounding this off on. So gold has managed to hit an all-time high now in US dollars, something it hasn't managed to do since uh, the 2011 peak. Uh, we've also seen an interesting sort of lagging uh, somewhat in the, in the big tech boom where the Nasdaq actually looks like it's going to close down uh, by the end of the week, you know, uh, at a lower level, which is uh, it hasn't done really for quite some time, or so it, so it feels at least. Uh, and then at the same time, um, you're looking like uh, like Bitcoin actually had a had a really a really strong week. Of course, we're not we're not nowhere near the uh, the ten thousand dollar level yet, but it's been a very interesting week so far. All manner of stories that we could pursue with uh, today's podcast. Sam, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm good. I'm I'm going okay today, and uh, it's a it's a new world here in the UK where it's a compulsory mask wearing uh, in shops. And um, I, I was at the shop earlier, and 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 the uh, the people were wearing the masks, and I had uh, managed to forget mine, and I wasn't shamed into wearing one, but I was politely offered a a mask, which I accepted and put on because. Yeah, I probably should have should have made sure I, I remember that next time. But it's going to take some adjusting. But it's a new world. But uh, uh, yeah, crazy little crazy week on the markets. Like you say, it's gold is is shot up to its US dollar all time highs. Silver as well has actually been on a rampant run, as well as some yep. other more obscure style commodities. Helium is is on another uh, run at the at the moment as well. Um, oh, this is the second it? time. Yeah, it's, it's popped as well. I mean, it, it, it took a bit of a run. I think it was October last year, but it's it's away again. So those those balloons for all your kids' parties are going to be a little bit more expensive. Um, yeah, Bitcoin's had a great week as well as your wider crypto. There's there's been a few few interesting stories developed there. So we could definitely go down a few rabbit holes today, which I think we will. Uh, but what we do want to cover off on at the very top of our seventh episode today is our competition to win a case of beer. So uh, last week, we kind of forgot to uh, announce it at the top of the episode. We got to it eventually. But um, uh, what what the competition is, is that uh, Boaz and I, we order a, a case of beer. Uh, you know, it's usually... I don't know what, uh, uh, about uh, a dozen or so beers uh, that we drink, that we review on this show, obviously being the, uh, you know, booze, booms and busts show. Um, and so what the competition is, is to win the case of beer that we order next. So uh, when we place our order to get our next lot of beers, we will place an extra lot and send it out to the winners, or to the winner, I should say, of our competition. And all you need to do, to win that case of beer is listen to our podcast during this podcast both boaz and i will announce uh one of our favorite beers of all time it will be the same ones we mentioned in last week's show and all you have to do is uh just send us a message on twitter at booze booms busts uh with the correct answers and uh and that's it and you go into the draw to win if we get a few people with the correct answers then we'll randomly pick one um if we get one entrant with the correct answers, happy days, they win the case of beer. So uh, all you have to do is listen to the show, uh, stick with us. We will mention our uh, favorite beer of ours. Take note of that and write it down and then send us a message on Twitter at Booze, Booms and Busts and you will go into the draw to win the next case of beer that we order for this podcast. 
Very good, Sam. Now, in terms of our first beer this week, it is a is a beer that is uh, is but from Siren Craft Brew, who incidentally also uh, make my my favourite beer, which I'll uh, speak about a little later. Uh, but Siren Craft Brew, this is Futurist, which is a gluten free session IPA. Now we have uh, shared our grievances as they are with uh, with session IPA or the, the session <laughs> title at least in, in previous session. In, yeah, indeed the the concept of a some beers being sessionable and some of them aren't is uh, quite strange. This is also gluten-free, which is also, uh, you know, it's a fad that's been around for, for quite a while now. Uh, Sam, what do you make of this? You poured this out, I think, already. Yes, I have, and I've taken a sip, and I, I must say, straight off the bat, it is, uh, it's very nice. It's smooth. Uh, I, I had, a, had a sip of that, and that, that is smooth. Now, this, that may be something to do with the gluten-free aspect of it, um, but it's definitely, definitely uh, fruity. Uh, and in the sense of not being crazy, but being actually, you know, tasting like a, almost like a tropical kind of beer, uh, definitely picking up grapefruit straight off the bat. Um, and I'm also getting a little bit of berry off of, off of this sucker. So, um, you know, I think there's a few different ones that will probably taste as we go through it, but, um, I, I, I like it very much, uh, from first, uh, instances. So this, this could be, this could be a good one. This, this could get up there in our ranking system. I'm you know, just throwing it out there early on. Yeah, it is, uh, it is very good. does not taste 4.8 to me, I would say. It does, I would say it tastes milder. I'm definitely getting the, the grapefruit, like you say. Uh, interestingly, on the back, it says suitable for vegetarians and vegans. I wasn't aware there was uh, something that was suitable for vegans that wouldn't also be suitable for vegetarians, but I guess that's just a, a pet peeve, I think, on, on my side. Uh, but Futurist, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's a pretty good... Uh, I think it's got a cool label as well. It's like a cool label, uh, cool name. Yeah, it's like Alice in Wonderland kind of thing. Um, where do you think we should start with futurists, Sam? Because you're the uh, you're the technology <laughs> buff here. What's the world of tomorrow going to look like? Huh? You know what? Someone called me a futurist once, and um, oh, really? I don't, I'm not sure whether I, I I don't know whether I wanted to accept that as a title or not. I mean, my my background is in is in markets and and, and investing and advice and that sort of thing. But with obviously with a very strong tilt towards technology, new technologies and, and researching and, and, and breakthrough technologies, revolutionary style technologies, um, you know, and, and that's, that's always been a, just a fascination of mine. I think from, from being a little kid, um, just something about tech. My wife says sometimes that I love my tech more than I love her, um, which is <laughs> not true. It's not true. Uh, my dear, dear phone, my sweet, dear phone. I mean, wife, 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 wife. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. At the moment, actually, I was writing about this today where um, I think people in general uh, are not, not oblivious, but almost complacent with how fast our world moves forward and we develop and, and progress with the types of technologies that, that, that sort of come into our lives. And, it's one of those things when it comes to the future and, and trying to forecast what that future might look like, um, the seeds of what come tomorrow always uh, are in place well, well before people realize. And then some of these big technology trends and booms, like, you know, whether it be the smartphone or the app revolution or even personal computing. Sorry, Sam, you might hold it there. I can't, I suddenly the um, sound just completely dropped. I can't hear anything. You can't hear me sure. at all. Uh, let me just what check. What's going on? Uh, it seems to be okay at my end. It's it's picking up. I'm getting. Can you, can you say something? Yeah, my input yeah. levels all 
my input levels all what? seem to be going fine. Oh no, I can hear you again now, dude. Sorry about okay. that. Could you uh, could you restart that sentence you were on before I interrupted? Where, whereabouts so? from? Do you know? Uh, well, it doesn't really matter. But whenever I interrupted you, uh, okay. you just carry on from there. Okay. Or just restart uh, that bit if you can remember. Yeah, let me let me see if I remember. Okay. So I think people can be a little complacent about how quickly technology springs up and enters their day to day life. Um, you know, whether it be the app revolution. Uh, the app economy sort of gigging and, and that sort of remote working style thing, smartphones, personal computing, the smart home, you know, all these sorts of technologies, they didn't just appear overnight and, and hit the mass market. You know, they were, they were seeded and developed, you know, a decade, two decades ago. So it's one of those things where a lot of the stuff that might seem crazy today uh, to a lot of people just isn't as crazy as you think because of the speed at which these things get developed. And, and, uh, you know, we were talking off, uh, off, off air just before about things like drones. Um, and and when, you, when you say drones, uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is like big military drones. And we might dig into that in a little bit. But, you know, the idea of a, of a small autonomous drone delivering stuff to your doorstep, again, something we've mentioned before, um, it's not so crazy. But it, but it kind of is to a lot of people today. It's hard to, to put yourself in a future scenario where, you know, your Amazon delivery isn't dropped at your doorstep by a guy anymore. It's just a little robot that, that just, you know, is reeling around on the pave walk and, and, and just stops at your place and drops off what needs to be dropped off. And, you know, these, I think the pandemic sort of given a little bit more of an appreciation for people as to how these sorts of systems can work where, you know, minimal human touch and use technology and, and systems to, to do a lot of things that maybe we hadn't considered before. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, talking about the future, thinking about the future, whether it be in, in how we interact with each other, how we interact with our world, how we get around, um, how, you know, how we spend money, what is money, all these sorts of things are, are up for grabs when it comes to what they're going to look like uh, tomorrow and in, in, in a year's time and in 10 years and in 20 years time. Um, but I think it's always good to keep an eye on the future and to, to listen to what you know, futurists have to say about things because they might come across as a little batshit crazy sometimes, which I'm sure I do. Um, but, you know, a lot of the things they say end up making a lot of sense. It's just that whether or not investors and people sort of open their minds enough to what, what that potential could be. Yeah, it reminds me of that, uh, so that classic thing, uh, which I think a lot of people debated when they were school kids, which is if you went back in time, uh, if you had a time machine, uh, you'd actually, that there is this idea that if you went back in time, you would, because you know how everything is run in the future, that you would actually be able to become like, you know, a king in the area because you're a prophet, right? But yeah. when you think about it, so little of what we actually use, we understand how it fundamentally works. Mm. So, you know, so chances are, if you went back, you wouldn't actually be able to make any of the devices that, we have today so everyone probably just think that you were an idiot or uh, or you, you're some kind of con man you know um is that that but when you think of futurism um and you you know the people who really do look into the nuts and bolts of, of how uh, certain applications work and whatever when you think about it in the last 20 years i mean it is the futurists who have been rewarded the most to some degree at least uh in the market right so you know the the, the true believer in the dot-com boom, you know, the convert of the dot-com boom from the 90s 
if they just held on to the right companies, you know, like Amazon, yeah, um, and they took you know an eighty percent loss, you know, if they were still that, if there was still that futurist believer uh, element to them, they uh, you know they would have they they would still have ended up being paid uh, handsomely, and uh, you know probably become some kind of uh, you know Silicon Valley magnate, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, a lot of the people that have been onto these big trends and, and, and been in that sort of futurist space have ended up being in like quite powerful positions with some of the biggest companies. I think it was it, was it Ray Kurzweil that was, um, you know, had a strong hand in, in Google and its development. Again, you know, he's one of the most renowned uh, futurists, I think. That are out there. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't actually familiar. He did have a. He did have a, a role to play at Google, but I wouldn't be surprised at all. Mm. And so, like, there's there's a lot of and there's a lot of opportunity to see. The tricky thing, though, with it is that hindsight's you know a wonderful thing, and it's easy to sort of look back and say, "Oh, well, that was quite obvious." But when you're in the yeah. moment, you know, like today, you know, it's the hard part is to really see the big opportunities that come for the next, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years time. So, you know, you, you look at yourself and you look at the markets and you think, well, what is it? So if, you know, at the turn of the 19th, 19th turn of the 20th century, um, you know, what were the, what were the really big things, you know, so I guess electricity, the motor car, um, oil then in the early parts of the 1900s. And that's what really drove the first sort of 50 years of the 1900s. And then it's sort of, you know, things like the, the, the plane and, and, and then communications all of a sudden became a thing from the telephone, from the radio, the telephone, the television, uh, and then the, obviously the internet. And I think it's hard when people are in a position that they are in today to think of what comes next. And, and a good, good, I think, thing to think about and I use this occasionally because this, this puts you in a position to realize how hard it is to, to think about what comes next is when you look at music, right? You know, first of mm. all, there was, you know, live music. That's, that's how you consumed music. You were at the piano or you were at the club and you had the live music. And then, then they were able to broadcast music on something like the radio. Then you're able to record music on, on vinyl, uh, then cassette. And from cassette came CD uh, from CD sort of in between uh, was, was sort of mini disc and all these iterations of how we can, can record and consume music. And then obviously through into the streaming revolution and to think that streaming is the end of how we would consume music, I think is probably a little bit naive. So there's going to be an iteration of something beyond streaming as we know it now. And the difficulty is trying to figure out what the hell that is. But we know that when you go past through history, it's again, it's no, you know, maybe it is, this is the ultimate in, and, and for the next hundred years, it's just streaming. But I think that's a, probably a naive position to take considering the technology that's available and how we progress and develop and innovate these sorts of things. So that's where the tricky thing uh, sort of fits in is, is if, if Sony was huge in, thanks to music in the, uh, you know, 80s and 90s and Spotify is huge in music today what's the next one what comes next and that's that's what you know we constantly are trying to figure out and look for yeah you know there's a part of this uh, part of this puzzle that I'd like to uh, like to go over with you actually because yeah. 
It's so part of this thesis is the great technology of the time drives the greatest investment returns of the time, correct? The I think it's the greatest I think it's realizing what ha, what has the potential to become the greatest technology driver of the time because yeah, I think by the time yeah. you you get to them and they're already big you're too late. Yeah, 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 sorry. Uh, like recognizing what the greatest technologies of the next, you know, of, of the of the, you know, the coming present yeah. uh, is what unlocks that investor value, right? Yeah, I so, think so, yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that I uh, I think about an awful lot is the riddle of the 1970s with what really was it that destroyed the stock market over that period? Because mm. the 1970s, uh, you know, uh, and inflation has to be a part of that puzzle. But 1970s, um, you know, technology did advance, right? This was, yeah. this is the middle of the Cold War. There's all yeah. manner of tech that was getting rolled out at the time. Uh, of the military variety, at the very least. Um, but at the same time, if, you're, if you want to think back now as to the major inventions of, uh, of the 1970s and what the major sort of tech drivers, if you had invested in them then, uh, you know, over the, still during that 1970s period, you probably still would have gotten wrecked to some degree. Um, and I, I wonder why, I wonder how that, how that works, because if you're the, you know, you're the investor that just looks to the future, you're the, you're, if you're a futurist investor uh, during the late 60s, which I'm sure many people were to some degree, um, I mean, you would have been crippled for that decade of the 1970s, right? Even if you'd been ahead yeah. of some of the technologies at the time. And I just wonder how to, how to unpick that. Because the thing for me with, uh, while I totally grasp the, the nature uh, and your side of, uh, of what you do, where you're, you're just looking for that next big tech, that's, uh, you know, that's going to influence the world and, and change how we live and everything, could be scuppered by whatever it is, you know, in terms of investment returns. Your investment yeah. returns in that tech could be scuppered by whatever it was that emerged in the 1970s, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if, even if you look at what happened this year to the markets, if you'd have been investing fresh, uh, never invested before, and you were getting into the market in January and February, you'd be wrecked. And you'd, well, to a big extent, you know, you'd probably still be wrecked. Well, the same, you know, it depends when, if your timing's, if your timing's off, <laughs> you know, there's an element of luck to that as well. But I think when it comes to things like futurism or, and looking at technology and technology trends and investing, I don't think there's room for short-term investing in that space. I've never, I've never sort of adhered to the short-termism that, um, that, that I guess investors do want and do look for. Uh, it's almost it, almost always a, a bigger, a longer than a decade time frame, because some of these technologies take about that long to really hit the mass market and really uncover their true value potential. But then also that helps to negate some of the market shocks that come pretty much every decade anyway. So again, it's, it's difficult because, you know, and when it comes to any sort of investment, whether it be technology or, or gold or, or whatever, you know, it, it's, it's never an all in strategy. It's never a one in all in just, you know, balls deep on, on this one sort of big investment play. And, and it's where, you know, portfolio construction and the boring things of investment are important for people to understand as well, because, you know, I could be a futurist as much as I want, but at the end of the day, if I've not got a smartly 
you know, managed built portfolio to mitigate the, the, just the realities of some of the market crashes that happen, you know, a bit stupid really. And so it, it, it comes into really just understanding markets, understanding how to build a portfolio, how to manage your own risk and your timeframes, because you're right, you can get decimated in some of these markets because they're so kind of edge of the bell curve. Um, if, if they don't play out, if the, if the trend doesn't play out, or if there are just external macro factors that rip a market to pieces, you're fucked, <laughs> for lack of right. a better phrase. <laughs> Yeah, it's all—it's just that fear of what that that third force, like like inflation was, I guess, in the in the seventies, a really tall thing apart. It's just or, that or war as well, right? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Though actually, well, though interestingly, that you know during the First World War, there were people who made a huge amount of money from uh, from stocks and stuff because uh, you got the you know sort of the the war profiteering uh, sort of machines, yeah, of speculators, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting subject that you know because I'm more because I'm thinking 1970s might be this kind of decade we might see that again uh, just from the level of uh, you know government intervention now um, yeah. within markets and and ever increasingly within the real economy you know um, yeah well so that's an interesting point you make because I think as well now we've got other other ways to find entry into markets. And that might be something like investing in companies that would typically be off limits to the average investor that you can now access through something like, you know, crowdfunding investment or, or cryptocurrency markets. Again, so what, what a cryptocurrency market does is it flips on its head the idea that, you know, early stage opportunities are shut off to all investors before they actually become a public company or something like that. So it's almost like in, with cryptocurrency, you've got a chance to be a early stage VC sort of um, in getting into some of these early, you know, technology potentially, you know, world changing sort of plays before the, the, the traditional money gets a real shot at it because they're so skeptical of it still. So we, we never had these sorts of, new concepts around what markets could be or, or how the average investor can, can play, you know, different opportunities like that. So I think that's also a, uh, something that, you know, we didn't have in the, in the 1900s, really, you couldn't, if you wanted to get into an investment, you, you pretty much had to invest in the stock. But by the time you've invested in the stock, a lot of the money's already been made by the early backers of it. So that's changing as well. I think a lot uh, in the last, Really, in the last five years, that's changed a lot as well, I think. Yeah. And interestingly, you get the phenomenon with the more mature, developed financial markets that by the time uh, uh, you know, a tech company IPOs, uh, you know, you've got a lot of people saying it's the, uh, you know, the final public offering uh, where you know, all of the money has been raised privately yeah. for that tech company due to the, yeah. the rise in private equity. So by the time they actually get to the IPO, it's actually the, the, it's, a, it's the founders and the early funders. It's just an opportunity for them to finally cash out, you know? Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, when you're looking at crowdfunding types and, and crypto, it's much more direct and it's much more uh, sort of the companies really who actually need the capital to some degree, or at least they have a lot of uh, desire for it earlier on, uh, who can access it there. Not, not to say there's not plenty of fraud, uh, as of course, there's some of course, that, uh, of course. You know, play, there's plagued crypto for some time. Uh, but that's simply the nature of the sort of the front, the most, you know, the, the most um, wild frontier of investing. But Sam, yeah. I, I think it might be the humidity we've got here in London. 
uh, and the the heat in this room. But I've I've completely demolished this beer. Really. <laughs> uh, you know what? So it. have I. I, I yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm about one sip away from it. So while I've consumed the the remaining uh, sip of mine, why don't you let us know what you think about this one and give us a rating on it? Right. Yeah. While uh, while you have the dregs, I'll, uh, I'll I'll have a look at this one again. So yes, this is. Siren Craft Brew, this is Futurist, which is a gluten-free session IPA. Now, I, I did say, uh, I was going to say um, what, my, what my favorite beer, or one of my favorite beers is. I and mean, It is indeed from Siren Craft Brew, for that matter. It's Uncle Zester. Uh, so if you do uh, submit that to uh, the, the Twitter account for Booze, Booms and Bust, you'll be in with a, with a chance to win uh, a case of beer, which will match, actually, our next set of beers when we do get them. Uh, but this is Futurist. Now, this is, um, as... Uh, as Sam said before, there is an awful lot of grapefruit with this one. Uh, and it does, but while at the same time tasting like a very smooth IPA. Um, so it is very good. You know, there is nothing that you can really say is bad about this unless you want really intense flavor. So it's quite refreshing uh, and it's not too hazy. Doesn't doesn't taste heavy at all. Uh, and it's higher than, you know, it's got it's stronger than it actually tasted is. So it's, uh, I'd say this is pretty good. At the same time, however, I'm not hugely... Um, so blown away by it. I could definitely drink several several of those. Uh, not hugely blown away by the flavor, but that's simply the nature of the product, I think, to some degree. Uh, so I would give this on our on our rating system for any new listeners. That's from triple uh, A minus being the worst, uh, all the way to triple B plus being the best. Uh, I would give this, I think, a hmm. I think I would give this a B plus. I think that's my that's my rating for this. That's not a that's not say it's it's uh, you know massively bad, but there's, it didn't. Uh, it seems to me almost forgettable. I'm afraid uh, for me. What do you make of it, Sam? So I, I quite enjoyed that from start to finish, and uh, it, it delivered the same sort of taste at the last sip as it did at the at the top. I also kind of like the fact. So it's you know what's interesting is like four point eight percent. It's almost considered to be somewhat mild. Uh, in terms of strength here, but 4.8 percent is a—it's a pretty potent beer, really. I, I know back home, you know, we've, most beers sort of fall up around the sort of—we call them heavy beers—and it's sort of from about 4.5 percent to about five, five point two percent. You Australians need to drink more, mate. I well, I know. I think I think that's changing. I mean, I haven't been there for a while, but from you know when I was there, that was sort of a heavy beer, and then a light beer—not like the Americans call them light but a light beer in terms of light alcohol content was, you know, sort of 3%. Um, and you could actually have a few of those and then jump, jump in the car that, that we don't, endorse, we don't endorse drink driving at all. Of course, in any situation, uh, nonetheless, uh, I love, I, I, I actually quite love that. Now it, it's not, you know, it's not the best beer I've ever had in the world. And you're right. I can understand it's, it's, uh, it's good in the sense of it's consistent. It's got a refreshing taste. I could drink a lot of those. Um, throughout a day, particularly if, you know, in a beer garden or out in the sun. But I, I really enjoyed that. And um, I'm actually going to give this a double B plus, which is oh up there. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that more than I probably anticipated I would. And again, it's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's beauty in the eye of the beholder, I suppose. But um, I, like, I like the can, I like the design, I like the taste, I like the refreshing nature of it, like it's not too heavy. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a double B plus for me. I really enjoyed that by Siren. I think I might have to drink some more of Siren. If if your favourite, uh, uh, the Uncle Zester is from Siren as well, um, then I think this might be a brewery that I'm going to have to pay a lot more attention to. 
Yeah, Siren is a uh, Siren's a real winner of a brewery in general. They have a core range, which are uh, these because uh, you know, as it, with it being called Siren, it's got uh, the mermaids uh, on the on the bottles. And I think well, there's uh, I think there's four or five of those. One of them is called Calypso. Uh, and they've also got um, I think there's a yeah, the, the, there's a lot. There's a core range that they do, and then they do these sort of special editions ones. And I think the Futurist might be one of those because it's outside the core range. Uh, but it's recently that they've uh, they've gotten into supermarkets and they've managed to start selling cans because they used to just right. be only be bottles. Ah. Um, and uh, so they've they've broken into the uh, broken into the supermarket range to some degree, I think. Uh, but yeah, they are very good indeed. If you're if you're listening to this and you haven't had some Siren beer before. Uh, I, I would definitely recommend it, or at least at least giving them a try. While I say that, though, uh, I think that is the largest divergence that we've had in our ratings, Sam. I think that by an it is actually, of, yeah. We we're usually within at least sort of one step from each minus, other, but, yeah. but uh, that's yeah, that's a that's a big jump for us. No, we we both liked it. it wasn't a negative. Uh, we oh yeah, absolutely. And anywhere near the A's, so I think we're fine. No, not even close. <laughs> now, Sam, would you like to uh, would you like to tee up what our next beer is? Yes, so the next one is the Pretty Mess IPA. I, I love the name, Pretty Mess IPA. It's just so applicable for a beer. And this is from the Burning Sky uh, Artisan Brewers and Blenders. I mean, if you wanted to make, uh, you know, some boutique beer, then, then the Burning Sky Artisan Brewers and Blenders is, is quite the name. Uh, but it's, yeah, the Burning Sky Brewery. <laughs> Um, and this is the Pretty Mess IPA. It's it's a bit more potent than the Futurist. This is a seven percent, um, and uh, yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to this. It's a it's a wonderful label. It's got a. I'm not sure what the streetscape is. It almost looks like it could be something like New York, perhaps. I was thinking of... maybe maybe somewhere in Paris, just with the weird architecture. Yeah, there's there's like fire escape style um, sort of you know on the outside of buildings, maybe yeah, Paris, yeah. maybe I don't know. If if well, anyone like, from Burning like Sky Louisiana. is listening, let us know. Yeah, maybe Italy, maybe Italy. I don't know. Who go? Who knows? I'm I'm thinking maybe one of these. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking a uh, an American state that was originally. Well, you know, an American territory that was originally French. So I'm going to think Louisiana, actually. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's, my, that's my best pick. We've got some um, punk rock chick on the front with the yeah. studded vest and presumably, I think it's a guy beside, uh, with a similar, wearing similar attire. Uh, may contain sediment, which is always, uh, which always means it'll be an interesting uh, <laughs> yeah. drink, uh, positive or negative to some degree. Uh, but yeah, here we are, 7%. Yeah, it definitely doesn't pass the see-through test. There's no looking to the other side of that. So if you wanted to undertake some clandestine activity, just do it on the other side of one of these beers. <laughs> there is, uh, they, ha- they haven't bothered to say suitable for vegetarians, only for vegans, this one. Maybe, maybe the, the vegetarian lobby will be disappointed. Is, is it uh, one of those things where it sort of works one way and then it's sort of uh, retroactive from that? So if you kind of work down a scale where... You know, you've got vegans, oh, yeah. vegetarians. Like, if it's vegan friendly, then it's just assumed that everyone else is friendly for. Yeah, well, unless you're gluten intolerant or something or lactose. Oh no, but vegans not lactose either, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what no lactose that? there either. Have you had a sip of this yet? Uh, yes, I have. I'll have and another what one. Are the, what are the impressions? Um, yeah, so it's definitely it's definitely uh, stronger. 
you get that straight off off the bat. Um, yeah, this this has got a, a probably I think it's a much more pure IPA taste to it. Um, certainly compared to what the futurist had, um, a little bit more earthy. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, it, so far drinkable. I'm not I'm not haven't quite figured out where I sit with it to be fair just yet. Um, I think I think this is one of those ones that buy you know, three or four cans, I would be a, I would be a pretty mess. Um, which actually probably is a good time for me to drop in my favorite beer for the competition so that uh, people that want to enter our competition can do so with uh, Boaz's uncle Zesta. So one of my favorites uh, is the Aflachem Triple, uh, which is a Belgian beer uh, that is ridiculously strong. And, and I say pretty mess is relevant because the last time I had a bunch of Aflachem Triples, I was a dead set pretty mess by the end of it because <laughs> they're, they're punchy, beautiful, but strong. So if you're entering our competition, uh, again, the answers you need are Uncle Zesta and the Aflachem triple. Um, and you go into, the case, uh, go into the draw to win a case of the beer that we order next. Yeah, I, I agree. This is definitely, uh, the pretty mess is definitely tasting like, it's tasting its strength, this one. Mm. And uh, it tastes quite heavy as well. I think uh, by the time we finish this, I think we're really going to feel like we've just drank three UK <laughs> units yeah. filled with uh, uh, hops and uh, hops and malts and uh, and golden naked oats. Uh, as uh, as the so, what is what is a naked oat uh, compared to a, a normal oat? I have no idea. I mean, I should know this. This is probably something that we should know about porridge or something, a golden naked oat. But uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid that one's lost on me, I must say. Um, I, I feel like there'd be some sort of um, movement amongst the other wheat-based, um, I suppose, yeah. parts of agriculture. It's like, well, if, if the oats get to be naked, then uh, I feel, feel that's infringing on maybe the malts rights or something like that. Yeah, it could uh, go all, all manner of different. Is that maybe if they keep the fiber on or something, you know, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't churn them at all? I don't know. I don't know. But I'd, I'd love to know if, if there are any master brewers out there, can please let us know what the difference between a uh, oat and a naked oat is. Yeah, I've had quite a few from Burning Sky in the past, and they really—they are—they do like their artisan stuff, where they're uh, mixing lots of different things together. They do really love leaving leaving sediment inside bottles and inside cans. Uh, they they make some very interesting saisons if you if you like saisons. Um, and yeah, and this is another one. They are kind of, sometimes kind of hit or miss. We'll see how, how this one goes. I'm uh, uh, I uh, I retain I retain hope in this proving itself, <laughs> yeah. but we shall see. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I was just, I'm looking at the bottom of my glass, and it looks like there's just a whole bunch of um, like uh, herbs in the bottom of it. The sediment's yeah. actually quite nice. It's quite clean sediment, to be fair. Um, but Maybe sorry, the, uh, yeah, it's like a modern apothecary's potion or something like that. Yes. Oh, now that's um, a name for a beer. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why not? The apothecary's <laughs> potion. The apothecary's potion. I love that. In, uh, in terms of Pretty Mess IPA, I mean, so we've just gone from futurist to Pretty Mess. I guess Pretty Mess is where we are in, at the moment in terms of yeah. uh, where everything stands. Uh, interestingly, this week, uh, as we mentioned earlier, it has been a great week for gold and for silver to some degree. And as you pointed out, even for helium, 
for anyone out there who is uh, loading up on helium, you know, you've got the, the, the gas <laughs> canisters in the basement. You've been stacking them for several years now. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a very interesting uh, week, I must say. Uh, one thing I've been looking at, I'm not sure if you've been following it, Sam, is that uh, Judy Shelton, uh, the, uh, sort of the economist who is Trump's nomination to become a Federal Reserve governor, has managed to pass... Uh, the Senate's Banking Committee. So she's one yes. step closer to getting uh, to getting voted in uh, as a Federal Reserve Governor. So this wouldn't give her. It's not like you know Jerome Powell. She's not the chair of the Fed. It's just it would give her uh, it would give her a vote from one of the Federal Reserve banks, and uh, and so she's passed that. And you know the the sheer amount of attack articles she has been subject to ever since the nomination, and probably even before, just from daring to talk about things like gold or criticizing um you know fiat currency to some degree uh you know it is incredible just that you because know, i've been watching it for quite a while ever since the nomination really you just see these articles here and there whenever she says uh, anything or if she was uh you know having a meeting with somebody or whatever they were there's, there's always going to be some kind of article that's just going to talk about her as this or really controversial um controversial individual with these crackpot ideas and uh, it is it is nuts just the amount of uh, heat that's getting thrown at her now. Now that she's even closer to the uh, even closer to the federal governorship. Um, so, I don't actually know. yeah. Well, carry on. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say. So, what's what is the what's the con- what's the controversy that she's stirring up? Is it that she she bucks the trend of what uh, the 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 central bank has tried to do for the last? 12 years now or is she is she is she bringing back more i guess traditional concepts of of what money should be or could be in the economy um you know even going back to a to a gold standard i mean i do, i'm not i'm not a hundred percent down with it as much as you are but i i kind of i want to understand what is the actual uh controversy here well i mean what why do they hate her so much yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and I don't think that I, the answer is, well, the answer could simply be is she doesn't take a, uh, a main, she does not come from the mainstream school and she does not uh, come with a mainstream approach by, by any measure. So she is very happy, you know, as we are at the fringe, uh, to question the very relevancy and the very need and the... Um, the uh, the effectiveness and the sort of the, the positive effect on society of central banks in general. So I mean, she has questioned: Do we really need a Federal Reserve? Right. If you're considering this person is then going to become take a role in the Federal Reserve, this is obviously something that some people will be very afraid of. You know, they may mm. she may be trying to subvert this this um, this public authority over interest rates. You know, she may be trying to uh, you know reduce the extent to which the Federal Reserve intervenes in markets, which so many people rely upon or, or want at least the government to control. Uh, she, you know, being open to the idea of a gold standard in general, when the mainstream consensus is always uh, gold standard is what made the Great Depression uh, occur to some degree and is what made it worse. Uh, and uh, this is a this is something that, you know, we're we're so we're so much better now to have having gotten rid of gold. So the mainstream consensus is way away from gold in being anywhere near, uh, you know, what it was even in 1971. Uh, and so one one big part of her approach is always saying that we need stability 
within the international financial system to some degree. Gold is a perfect asset to do that for because it is universally um, loved by humans in general. Uh, and so ex floating exchange rates uh, may not be actually as good as fixed exchange rates it provide, between fiat currencies, provided there is a neutral reserve asset that is being transferred here and there in between that. Uh, so, you know, she's, uh, she's talked about getting uh, a new version of Bretton Woods back on the table between countries in order to, um, in order to uh, make, make things much more stable and prevent the degree of, uh, well, to kind of prevent the volume, I think, of uh, speculation with foreign exchange markets. Now, I don't take the same approach by any measure. Um, Though, you know, I, I'm sure, sure there are plenty of things that um, we can agree on when it comes to things like gold in general. But this, even this, which, uh, you know, Jim Grant, the, uh, the great uh, interest rate observer himself, who's been, uh, who, who, you know, has been working for himself, publishing uh, investment research uh, on, on the subject of interest rates and debt and things like that for, uh, you know, 40 years at least, um, has, uh, you know, he, he describes her. He's an he's a interest rate historian. He describes Shelton as a centrist. You know, uh, after all, all of this, like she is not Oof. some right wing <laughs> fella uh, who is you know, saying we need to abolish the Fed, end the Fed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, this is a centrist who's relatively pragmatic about this. Uh, and yet during this, and now that she's got past this, uh, you know, the, set, the, the, the Senate Banking Committee, and it's now before the Senate, you've now got, uh, you know, former, um, you've got former uh, state officials, so establishment individuals saying, Republicans need to go against the president effectively and then join the Democrats in voting against her in the Senate to prevent her from getting anywhere near it. So there's this great article from the New York Times. It is you know, sort of the, the, the height of, of New York Times journalism when it comes to finance. And it, you know, it just says, God help us if Judy Shelton joins the Fed. You know, wow. God help us. And this is by, you know, this is a, a, you know, a, a, a treasury official in the Obama administration. Uh, I, I find it incredible just how brazen this is that this individual cannot be allowed to get near the Fed. It's not like when you're in the Fed that you, you, you suddenly you know, can stop the printing press or anything. This is just one governor with one vote. Uh, and yeah. I, 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 I'm almost certain it's not the New York Fed that she would be in control of. Uh, it's one of the other branches. Um, so, you know, it is, I think, I find it quite remarkable that this has happened. I mean, you, uh, have you how, uh, how, uh, how much attention do you give this kind of thing? I mean, it, you know, what's interesting about this, right, is that if she is causing that much backlash from the powers that exist already to... She must be doing something some, right, right? She's doing something, I think she's doing something right. Because you, like... You look at what's happened with modern monetary theory and you look at what's happened in 2008 and the decade that followed and what's happened all of this year. And it's pretty damn clear that what they think is supposed to be this wonderful economic uh, theory to help, you know, keep the economies moving and pressing forward has not worked. And so right now there's never been, I don't think there's ever been so much conjecture as to whether MMT, modern monetary theory, actually even works. And she's probably saying, you know what? Well, maybe, maybe you're wrong. 
and and that we should be looking at other things. And they're all like, no, no, we can't. Because, you know, the worst thing in the world for a central banker or for a, an elected official to do is to admit that they were wrong. It's, it's almost like a prerequisite for the job that if you get the job, you must never, ever, ever in your entire career admit again that you were wrong about something. Because to yeah. do so would mean that you would effectively have to be thrown out of power so that you'd, get, you'd, you'd lose your power. And so none yeah, of them want to lose power. Yeah. Exactly. Massive loss of confidence. Save for the greater good of people who you're supposed to be representing and the good of the economy and the good of the people that operate in that economy that you're supposed to be representing. You know, admitting you're wrong so that you can be right tomorrow is much better than just continuously admitting that you're not wrong and just kicking the can even further down the road and higher up the hill. But it sounds like she's just, she's shaken the tree. Um, it, 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 you know, I almost always bring these sorts of conversations about what is money uh, and the fiat money system and fractional banking and, and the ability to print money rampantly by central banks. I always almost bring that back to, to cryptocurrency systems and, and the idea of, of cryptocurrency having the potential to be as effective as money that we traditionally know it as, which I think it does because that idea, and, and if she's onto something, there's some parallels there, right? If, if there's, you know, the idea that the Fed isn't necessary um, or the, that perhaps we could do without the Fed um, gives credence to the idea that perhaps money should be decentralized and that there shouldn't be a single controlling entity controlled by a few elites in order to, to figure out how money is created and, and, and how it flows and how we get um, you know, velocity of money throughout an economic system. Maybe that should be decentralized uh, amongst you know, effectively everyone. So there's something in that, I think. Ultimately, to, to buyers and sellers. That's uh, right. Well, yeah, to an extent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm definitely open to these, uh, these kind of discussions. I'm not, I, I think probably, um, I mean, you know, just, just the concept that the government shouldn't have a monopoly over the issuance of currency uh, or interest rates is something that will get you totally branded a, uh, you know, an extremist wingnut. You know, if, oh, you, if know. you weren't, um, if you were, if you didn't think much about finance or economics, you'd probably think, uh, you know, you, but you know, that wouldn't appear as suddenly. Oh man, you are, you're, a, you're an extremist, right? You need <laughs> yeah. to be put on you're a watch. Basically, list. a terrorist. Yeah, exactly. Like, you're a financial terrorist. Um, but you know, to to some, to some, to a, you know, a statist or to a uh, to the uh, establishment. Um, financial classes. I mean, that really is a very, very provocative statement, right? Um, yeah. And yeah. I think it's that. So, just as you say, this makes you think of things like crypto and this other, you know, this other aspect of what it would mean if the government did not have a monopoly over a currency. Um, it is, it is because of that that I think that the Shelton gets this really just because the, it opens the possibilities for these kind of things. Where, there is, where the government does not get the final say so that um, that you know that, that leads her to be so controversial so one thing you know she gave a an interview in, in 2009 recently uh, well, well recently <laughs> she gave an interview in 2009 and uh, <laughs> where she said um, you know because the the government has has chosen the government has chosen to say you are only using this money. So you're only going to use the dollar for the Americans and you're only going to use the pound for us Brits. The government has a responsibility 
to make sure that that product that they are forcing on everybody to use is a good product. And that's yeah. why she says, you know, there needs to be some kind of gold link to make sure that, you know, people are getting a good product. Um, and it's just that, you know, that, that very idea where these days, you know, governments are, gonna, are trying to get growth going at any cost. They're trying to inflate away debt without overtly saying it and, you know, debase the currency to some degree. Um, that is, you know, this is something that just that statement is a shocking thing to say. And it's not something that anyone's like, I don't, you can imagine somebody who's in charge of trying to uh, get, go along the debasement path and the growth at any cost path. You can imagine to that individual being like, I do not want this woman anywhere near, <laughs> anywhere near. Like we don't want her saying anything to the press as a Federal Reserve governor, because you know how these Federal Reserve governors, you know, giving statements as half of the jawboning mechanism for the future position of interest rates and future interest uh, for the future course of monetary policy. You can imagine, um, you, you can imagine like just if she said something that was controversial, how that could mess around with all these algos that just listen to what Fed governors say all day and how it could make a huge amount of disruption. Like they just don't want any of that. Uh, but it's fascinating for me to watch just to the, the, the extent that they will try and go to, to try and prevent someone like that becoming a, a Fed governor. But to, to my side, I mean, I wonder why Trump actually wanted, not nominated her in the first place. Now, obviously, Trump is not the kind of guy who'd be, uh, you know, studying the landscape himself and picking somebody out. You definitely would have been relying on somebody else's advice and they will have picked her. Uh, but it may, I find it interesting to me that he would pick someone like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, considering his, his stance on we need, the, we need to get the market up. Um, and negative interest rates are actually bloody amazing. Uh, and, you know, print, print, print. Uh, we, need, we need to actually print more than the Europeans uh, because we're the greatest country in the world. You know, it, it's interesting that he's picked this individual. Um, uh, and so, so, yeah, just the entire drama to me is something I find uh, quite fascinating. You almost get the feeling like he doesn't really know what she stands for. You like, got that impression with Jerome Powell. Because that's how we, that's yeah. that's how things started out, right? Was like, yeah. yeah, he's doing a great job. He's doing a great job. Ah. Then he starts hiking interest rates. Like, no, this guy's whoa, an whoa, idiot. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then, well, then I wonder, it might maybe, be the same. Yeah, it may be. It may well be. Um, though at the same time, I almost thought with the Jerome Powell thing, it, it was just like you know, he, it was just like he he wanted somebody to be able to pin this stuff on, and then Jeff Powell just happened to be the guy. You, it would be. You know, finding somebody who would have kept interest rates lower, lower and lower and lower, maybe that would have been a hard person to find. I don't know. Um, That's true. But it, it, it does feel to me like it was nothing personal. It just needed somebody to blame whatever was going on on, on the Fed, you know? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating sort of turn of events because you mentioned a couple of things there that really sort of struck a chord with me where you were like, the, the Fed shouldn't have a monopoly on printing money. And when you look at, when you look at how uh, governments in particular really, you know, the, and authorities and regulators, like the worst thing in the world for them is for companies to have a monopoly in any industry. That's why there's anti-competition um, regulatory bodies in, in, in virtually every nation on earth. Um, because when you have a monopoly on an industry, you could do whatever the hell you want to do. And, and that's exactly what the Fed does. They have almost unlimitless power to do whatever they want to 
to the monetary system. And yeah, but I, the, I, we, the, the, the mild difference there is that, uh, and it's, it's a bit more insidious, isn't it? Is that we're, an, we're a company that has, a, that has managed to corner uh, some sector or corner some market. It uses that to extract the greatest profit. The government isn't so interested in the profit side uh, because, you know, it, it, well, in this case, it Well, they are, the kind of. Well, no, but it's not the profit side. It's the influence that it then, it's the control. So it's the power that it then gives is, is worth even more. It's more valuable to the government, I think. Well, that's right. So it's, 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 it's power profit. It's not necessarily monetary profit directly from them. Right, but it, yeah. It's, it's, it's the, the monetary profit's an ancillary thing because these, you know, they're, they're clearly invested in the markets and they know that that's going to have an impact. Like you can't, you can't, you couldn't possibly think that that they don't consider their own personal situations when they make some of these moves. There's, you know, they're supposed to be objective and all that, but you, you know, no human being ever has been 100% uh, completely objective when, when we, in that position of power, I mean, people, people can be 100% objective, don't get me wrong, but when you're Powell in a position like that. Be invested in uh, passive funds, you know, um, yeah, well, which, which adds, lends itself to that argument, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. They know that this, that what they do, you know, they're not going to make moves that's going to radically decrease the value of their own personal wealth. Just not happening because no one does that. Who would do that? Um, and, there, I mean, and, and when you sit at that level of power, there aren't that many checks and balances against you. You know, with people like us, you know, there's a thousand regulatory checks and balances and compliance checks and balances that we always have to adhere to. And so, you know, you can't step outside the rules, but when you're at the level of power that some of these uh, people in the Fed uh, and these higher echelons of, of government sit, that they, the, the, the idea that they can be above the law almost starts to ring pretty true. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's definitely the case. And you can definitely imagine, so for example, you know, just during uh, Theresa May's Brexit referendum talks, like, can you imagine the amount of, uh, insider trading and forex that went on from the number no of individuals who knew about it, uh, just texting people or letting other people know about how a meeting had gone or something. You know, you, you can definitely uh, you definitely see the, the sort of the space for enrichment. But the space for enrichment there was to, was from shorting things, um, which you know can be done by someone in the past. So you know, in theory, you can have somebody at the Fed who. Um, who instead of being long the market shorts it and then is completely fine with uh, doing things that are that would be negative for the market but lead to some other kind of goal i think for me the um, the the value of having that monopoly over currency i mean you in effect you can you can fund pretty much anything on a gov on the government side it doesn't necessarily need to be a, a personal gain element but just the the degree of authority that you then have is um is really quite hard to really comprehend one thing um i've always wondered about is if the the sheer just whenever there is a, a change in interest rates by a yeah. government um and i don't mean to exaggerate i mean every time there is a change in the interest rate it is a fundamental change in the course of history because nobody can comprehend the amount of different decisions that would have been made uh, and the difference in prices that would have occurred had money been slightly more expensive or slightly cheaper. Like the degree to which this infiltrates everything 
um, is, uh, you know, it, it is impossible for me to comprehend it. I used to think that, um, there's something I used to say where, uh, you know, central bankers, it's like they're, they're like an inverse politician where hmm. politicians have to um, yell the loudest for people to believe them. Whereas central bankers are actually afraid of saying anything, even quietly, simply because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, every word they say is monitored for any hint of what future policy might be. I mean, it's the opposite. They're afraid of speaking too much. Um, and again, this goes back to what you were saying earlier. You know, how it used to be an old, uh, I think it was the old Bank of England phrase was uh, never apologize, never explain, because you can never let, if you let the market lose confidence in what you're doing, then yeah. uh, your entire, the entire purpose of a central bank, now, especially now when there's no gold or anything, um, the entire purpose is lost if, if, if there is a loss of confidence in you. Um, but yeah, the, um, the degree to which, um, you know, just that, chair, that small change in interest rates changes everything. Like there are, there are, there are choices in our lives that we, we wouldn't have made if small things had been slightly more expensive, small, you know, it's all, all these marginal costs would have been different. Uh, and you can't, I, uh, to me, you can't uh, overstate the degree, you know, the, the level of influence you get from that. So if you imagine being in that position, you know, forget the monetary reward, just imagine being in that position. The power that someone with that wields is, um, is pretty nuts. Uh, I, th I think that alone would be intoxicating enough for some people. Oh, absolutely. I, th I think you're 100% right is that for a lot of those that are in power, the whole goal is to just seek endless power. Um, and that, that in itself is dangerous because they then, they do whatever it takes to remain in power and to seek more of it uh, at the expense of the, you know, the everyday person. Uh, yeah, the everyday and that's, man. that's, I think leads us into what you would very aptly describe as a pretty mess that we're sort of in today and, and, and probably segues us just, so beautifully into uh what our rating is for the burning sky pretty mess ipa because i don't know about you but i finished mine <laughs> yeah i'm very close to the humidity is really helping with the well it feels like you know you know part of the reason i'm gulping this down so so rapidly is just for uh, just to deal with the heat in here um, <laughs> yeah. yeah what would you uh, what would your rating be sam i, I think i went first last time so uh, off you go yeah so with this i i I, you know what, I wasn't a hundred percent sure when I first started uh, it off, but uh, this actually improved for me the more I drank it. And by the, by the end, it actually didn't taste as much uh, as a 7% I would think should taste. So in that sense, I think it probably ends up batting a bit below in terms of tasters to the actual um, uh, alcohol content there. But um, it is, it is, it is a much more sort of traditional style. I think IPA, um, I, I actually got a bit of orange. I got a bit of orange zest in there um, sort of towards the last sort of half of it, which may have been its true sort of flavors coming out, but um, in, enjoyed it. I think what's important there is that from start to start was a bit questionable, but then it improved. And I like a beer that gets better the more you drink it. Uh, and I think I could quite happily have a few of those. With You know what? I'm going to say, you could almost say that's, that's a session IPA <laughs> 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 because I think I would actually drink a few of those and not really 
sort of think too hard about it and, and be like, oh, this is, this is actually now starting to really get to me. And then literally by the fourth one, I would be a pretty mess. So I think it does what it says on the tin. I enjoyed that. And I'm actually, I'm going to give this a double B rating. I, I, I wasn't so sure it would be up there when I started, but by the end of it, I, that's actually one of the more enjoyable ones I've had uh, since we've been doing these podcasts. Oh damn! I must say that's uh, that's quite a rating. I think this time I'm, I think I might uh, diverge with you again, Sam. Uh, I, I do agree that it does uh, gain on you. I, I thought this was actually going to get uh, a bit worse the more I drank mm. of it. I thought it was going to it's going to be heavier uh, that, than it was. But by the end, it is. Uh, it definitely doesn't taste its strength, and uh, and, it, and it is a bit smoother despite the sediment. Nothing uh, doesn't feel too uh, doesn't feel too too heavy or anything like that. Um, yeah, this was, this was quite nice, but I think uh, double B, I'm afraid, is is not what I would give to this one. Um, I think I would give this an A plus. I think uh, this would be for me. It has a um, it does taste its strength at the very beginning, so it does taste like a, a seven percenter, and it does tra- taste quite heavy at the beginning. So it, it does wean itself off that. But in terms of smoothness all the way through, uh, as we've had with some of our uh, some of our other beers, uh, this doesn't ha- doesn't share that property. It's not a bad beer, um, but yeah, I think I think for me this is de- this is more in the in the in the A range. Um, so I think that, I think that's what I'll give it. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, I think that's another. I think that's probably the biggest divergence. In that's fact, that yeah. Had, it's, it's been an interesting one today. Maybe maybe it's been the the state of the weeks that we've we've had. But we've experienced yeah. <laughs> we've experienced this week is the the different impact that the beers have. To be fair, you know, you could probably throw some dishwater at me at the moment. I might give it a triple B. I don't know, but. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I enjoy, I enjoyed today's. I could, and to be fair, I'm I'm pretty tempted to chuck a couple of what we might be drinking over the next couple of weeks into the fridge and consume them over uh, some Netflix tonight as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, this is definitely this is the kind of weather for for decent beer consumption. I yeah. I would uh, I would say, um, but yeah, in terms of uh, in terms of closing remarks for for the week and for episode seven of the Triple B podcast, Sam, what is there anything yeah, you'd like to close on? Yeah, look, I think you know the, the, what we drank today is a probably good reflection of the state of play in most people's minds. Is that at the moment it feels like the world's in a bit of a bit of a mess, a, a pretty mess. Um, but I think it's it's important for people to keep an eye on on the future as well because you know tomorrow is a brighter day you know in a year's time we might very well look back on everything that's happening today and and be in a very 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 different far more positive and optimistic situation um you know these sorts of conditions don't last forever even when they're really bad you know back through history they've never lasted forever we're not still going through the bubonic plague uh if you sort of know what i mean by that so you know it's it's a good it's a good sort of um, bookend with that you know you've got, we've got the pretty mess and the futurist and i think they're you know while we're in a bit of a weird kind of awkward frustrating annoying state that even makes you maybe get a little angry from time to time if you just sort of push the boat out take a step back think about what what the world's capable of what people are capable of and, and how things move forward then yeah there's a lot to be optimistic about and positive about and and that sort of futurist view is probably not a bad thing for people to have very good, Sam. That was the seventh episode of the Triple B podcast. And as a quick reminder, if you are interested in getting in on our competition and getting a, a caseload of the beers that we shall be drinking in the future, 
do be sure to send in what our favorite beers were that we listed on this podcast. That was uh, Uncle Zester from me and uh, Afflechem for Sam. If you do send in those through to our, our Twitter account, uh, you shall be in with the chance of winning. That is all for this week. We shall be back again next week as ever. And we'll, we'll be there for episode eight. We're almost getting to the 10th one. I feel we should probably do something special for the 10th one. We should. But, uh, well, well, we've got a, we've got a Maybe few Maybe we'll order yet. a special beer. Yeah, quite. Right. Or, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's all manner of things I can think of that we might, we might want to <laughs> do. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see then. Uh, that'll, be the, uh, that'll be a topic of conversation, I think, for a few weeks to come. That's all for the moment. If you are listening to this, I hope you're having a very good weekend uh, or you're about to have a very good weekend, that is. Uh, and we'll be back again in the next one. See you later.